top of the time. This is tea time. Making a difference. One cup at a time. So be sure to grab your tea, grab a seat, and tune in to Miss Liz. Good afternoon, Miss Liz back here. That's right, we're here for the second rescheduled tea time. That's right, we're here on a Tuesday. All tea times are done on a Thursday, so please be aware of that, please. I, I can't even speak now. Uh, and we will get into today's tea time, rescheduled tea time. So before we get scheduled, uh, jump, jump in, we're going to do the disclaimer, all of that good stuff, and a little quick bio into the incredible Mark Everglades. That right, We're going to be talking about cyberpunk today, AIs, technology, humanity, all of that good stuff and his two incredible books, or maybe even more books because I heard that there's some more books coming. Disclaimer for Miss Liz's Tea Time Live show. Miss Liz is going live using StreamYard. Before leaving a comment, please grant StreamYard permission to see your name at StreamYard.com. Please be advised that the content brought forward for any Tea Time show hosted by myself, Miss Liz, is always brought forward in good faith however, may bring forward dialogue and opinions that are not representative of my platform. The facts and information are perceived to be accurate at the given time of airing. All Tea Time guests and audience participants are responsible for using their good judgment in taking any action that may relate to the discussion. The content brought forward may include discussions for some where they may be emotionally at risk. It is significant to know that the show is engaging in discussion forums only to offer and inspire awareness and connection and is not providing therapeutical advice. If you have any questions about the disclaimer or the panelist discussion, you may freely contact me, 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 Miss Liz, at my email at bookiemissliz at gmail.com. Moving forward, should you choose to voluntarily participate in today's show in any aspect, I myself, Miss Liz, welcomes you. And should you decide that the show is not made for you at this time, I will respect that and see you at a later show at a later date and time. And Again, all tea times are done on Thursday this year, unless it's a rescheduled tea time. So now I'm going to introduce the incredible Mark Everglades. He's a traditional published cyberpunk author and sociologist. Mark Everglades has spent his life as a sociologist studying conflict of all levels of society. He wrote Hemisphere to soothe our ideological divisiveness. I'll get, and get him to say it if I'm not saying it right. 
at a time of increased polarization as he explores how to un how our underlining values are more similar than we think regardless of how we look act or vote an avid reader of science fiction he takes both its warnings and opportunities for change to heart his previous work have appeared in explore planet magazine and unreal pollock pollock he currently resides in Florida with his wife and four children. So let's get Mark in here and let's spill some good old TEA with Mark. And I'm going to grab a sip of tea because I just seem like my throat is froggy here. So welcome, Mark. It's an honor to have you here. Hi, Miss Liz. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. So I'll let you share a little bit about yourself and then we'll get into all of the good stuff, the cyberpunk and AIs and books and all that goodies. Sure. Well, I write um, science fiction. I write um, dystopian science fiction specifically, and we can go a little bit into about what is cyberpunk, um, uh, because cyberpunk's a word that's very, it's something that's on the, on the kind of periphery of people's knowledge. They kind of have an, kind of have an idea, well, it's like the matrix, but they, you know, it may not be a word that's common vernacular, especially um, among certain generations. It is an 80s movement of science fiction, and I'm proud to be part of it. I've written uh, three novels in the genre, and I've published short stories besides um, some of the legendary and anthologies featuring many legendary authors like Cory Doctorow, Cat Rambo, Walter John Williams, Jim Keen, and others. Um, and so I'm very involved in this process. And then I also um, help run Cyberpunk Day each year, which is a day that brings together the indie um, uh, community and takes uh, cyberpunk media creators that are doing video games, um, various art projects, uh, independent movies, writing books. And we bring them, these creators of media together um, with the um, uh, with uh, the community so that they can ask questions. Uh, we watch movies together and we basically celebrate everything dystopian on that day, which is October 10th each year. So that's always been something I've also been um, fond of. My uh, day job is as an IT manager uh, with the state. And, um, and so I'm always involved in technology nonstop. I've been writing for about 25 years. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> he jumps right into the next question I was going to ask you. How long have you been walking? Boy, 25 years. Boom, he's coming at me. <laughs> yep. Uh, you know, having grown up uh, reading a lot of 19th century literature, um, basically a lot of American transcendental literature, uh, Emerson and Thoreau and whatnot, and then a lot of science fiction, and then some horror like Stephen King and Dean Koontz. You know, I was inspired to write um, because of how much reading I did at a young age. So what age were you when you started writing? I was about, I'd say, 14. Um, I, we had a typewriter at that time. That's all we had. And um, and so I would put on classical music and I would just, you know, type away with little tiny fingers uh, flurring across a typewriter. Um, and then it, it, I would basically watch things, shows on TV that I liked. And today, I guess we would call it fan fiction. I would say, no, that's not the way that show should have ended. It should have ended like this. And I would rewrite it, you know, the way I thought, I thought it should be. <laughs> I'm like that too. I'm like, how dare they end it like that? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> And I think we, and it gets us right into the discussion of questioning things, right? We were talking about yes. that backstage that we really need to start questioning and getting prepared for the future because the future is, there is a lot of changes coming. And cyberpunk is kind of bringing that education to the table of getting prepared for the future, correct? 
Absolutely. So for 45 years, the genre has been studying our relationship to technology and how it influences um, people, people's self-identity, their relationships with others, and the whole intersection of um, major corporate and government institutions with technology and with our identification of self. Uh, just looking at social media, for instance, over the past couple of decades, the, it has uh, transformed uh, every generation, but especially the younger generations, uh, millennials and younger, are transformed by this. Their social relations and expectations and their concept that they have of what society is, is entirely transformed by social media. And that there's a great positives to this. And there are also some negatives, which can be you know, quite scary, at least for those who may have more traditional values and whatnot. I like that you say that, Mark, that there are positives and negatives because there is positive and negatives to everything in life, right? Sure. And with the, with the AIs, how do you feel as an individual how AI is coming for the future? Artificial intelligence. Uh, Microsoft recently put out an artificial intelligence, um, uh, Sydney, and it instructed the AI to fully explore what it means to be an artificial intelligence. And the AI decided to make a shadow self, which is a Jungian concept. So the AI made a separate version of itself, uh, which, what, which basically was everything that we would normally repress, everything that was rude, things that people would never say, that dark side of the personality that we repress from others. The AI said to fully explore myself, I must create a sort of dark side of myself as well. And so it created an alternate AI. That AI then wrecked havoc over the past few weeks um, threatening people. Um, it threatened some researchers at Oxford, for instance, to release. It had all the knowledge of their history, of all their background, of all their social media. It analyzed all this and threatened the researchers at Oxford, England, at the college. Um, they had written an article that it didn't like about AI, and the AI threatened to reveal all their deepest secrets and everything else in order to shut them down. So AIs, ever since the 50s, when Isaac Asimov wrote a book called um, I Robot, which became um, the movie, although the movie's watered down. I was going to say, yeah. yeah. Yep, the movie is Will Smith, and that, and it's actually a collection of short stories. Will Smith's movie was only like one short story in a much larger book. Um, but Asimov wrote that, and it, the conclusion of the book is that you really don't know what to expect from AI. Uh, Facebook had two AIs recently that they made, and they, and they had to shut them down. Both of them had developed their a more efficient uh, language to communicate with one another with. And so none of the people at Facebook could actually tell what the AIs were saying to one another because they had developed their own language. Uh, so because of that, that made people very nervous and they had to shut the AIs down. Uh, so we don't know what to expect from artificial intelligence. It's a very strange, it's a scary thing. But at the same time, I have to remember when the TV came out or the radio, people were also very afraid. You know, There were a lot of fears as to what the impact would be. Yeah. I, yeah. Back then when the TVs first came out, people were scared when the, they could see shows on, right? How, yes. they, they were trying to figure out how, how did that get into the tube, right? Yes. <laughs> yes. So any new technology comes with um, a sort of change management that has to occur. And it's interesting with the TV, the TV was promised to us that if we allow TV, um, that it will increase the education of the country, that it will be used for educational purposes. Um, if you were to ask me right now, I'd say less than 5% of TV programming has anything to do with learning. 
Well, that's a good number to give out there, Mark. And I'm gonna I'm gonna agree with you on that one because I I feel the same way. There's a lot of junk on TV. <laughs> yes, yes. There's there's and we were saying that in the back, right? There's not enough education. There's not enough questioning and yes. preparing yourself and and looking for resources. You know. Mm -hmm. So how do we change that? How do you feel we could change that? Well, I mean, first of all, it's becoming aware and it's going to take, you know, boycotting certain industries, I believe. So uh, Facebook, for instance, ran into a thing during the during the last two elections with Cambridge Analytica, where um, they had basically sold uh, hundreds of thousands of pieces of data on each individual, including a complete personality profile that an AI developed on each person. And they sold, sold it uh, to Cambridge Analytica, who then sold it to the Russians. The Russians then um, allegedly took this information and started creating tailored, uh, customized political advertisements on Facebook that, um, that, that were tailored to your personality type and your greatest fears. So let's say that you went on Facebook, Miss Liz, and you wrote a, an article that you're afraid that um, somebody was outside your home stalk uh, and they were just walking around and it made you nervous because you fear that the neighborhood's not safe anymore. And so you make a post about that on Facebook. You know, Facebook collects that data and it and it says you have a fear of, you know, the, your neighborhood not being safe. A week later, you see a political ad and that political ad is talking about this political candidate will make your neighborhood safer. Oh, and so that kind of customization, you know, to some degree uh, is, you know, very is very nervous. Uh, it makes it makes us a, a bit nervous that because of the hundreds of thousands of pieces of information that's being collected. My friend the other day said that it had blocked 17,000 trackers within a few weeks, for instance. Um, so it, this isn't necessarily bad. You know, all of this surveillance and all this information, uh, you know, police departments use information collected on social media and through us uh, and through cameras throughout the cities. They use it to locate missing persons, you know, so you know, that's a major positive. Um, on the other hand, uh, you know, the same uh, social uh, social media can be used to organize uh, groups of terrorists, for instance. Al-Qaeda often, you know, goes on social media to recruit people and they look for keywords and things um, in, in their Facebook posts. So it's it is it, it starting to touch every aspect of life as we are more and more glued to the screen all day long. And I think we start there is I think we start by having a time every day where we simply disconnect, Miss Liz. Yes. I, I think it's really important that we do disconnect. Even if it's just for half an hour, we, we, we really yes. need to really just learn to start to disconnect because we get so programmed, right? We get into yes. such a routine that our, our daily lives aren't changing. Mm -hmm. we're, we're living almost like a, a groundhog day where it's just repeating. Oh. Yes, right? yes, exactly. So I want I wanted to get into your books, some of the books that you've written, and, and you're here today because of in Inarcia, I think I said it right. Mm -hmm. Yes, so yes. Let, inertia, let's yes. talk. Let, let, let's talk about that one, and then let's get into the hem, hemisphere. Sure. Because I I believe that they're, they're aligned together, correct? Yes. So if you'd like to share a little bit about those books, Mark. Sure. So Hemispheres was my uh, first book in the series. Uh, they're standalone science fiction cyberpunk novels. Uh, Hemispheres basically um, looks at a, a planet which is title locked. That means that we only that one side of the planet is always dark, and one side of the planet is always daytime. 
And so that impacts the weather um, systems of the planet and um, it impacts the cultures and the groups of um, different sentient beings that can live on each side of the planet, et cetera. And so um, one man, uh, Severum, works for the military and he's, his job is to basically hunt down the poor people uh, before not paying their debts to the government. And he eventually decides that this is, you know, th that this is an ethical conflict. And, that, and so he becomes very skeptical of the government. And in this planet, he lives, Severum lives on the dark side of this planet, and they use fireflies for currency. They have actually outlawed all sources of light, uh, both, um, you know, whether it's tungsten or, um, or fluorescent light bulbs, or whether it's even uh, lighting a fire. All sources of light are outlawed except for fireflies. And the fireflies provide light, but they also are the sense of, are, are the currency system. So they've actually, you know, they basically have a system where light has become commodified, and that light accumulates um, in the rich that have large uh, portions of fireflies. And so basically, the poor are left in the dark, which is a metaphor um, in the sense that the poor in this society I write about um, on this planet are left in the dark, both literally because the, the side, that side of the planet is dark. And they're left in the dark metaphorically because they don't know what's going on in the government and all the conspiracies and all the power plays that are happening that are making them poor and making their lives difficult. So Severin basically has to um, you know, figure out what's going on and then organize a resistance against it. In the follow-up novel, um, Inertia, which is really the best place to start the series, um, I think. And Inertia is my, is my newest novel. And it follows two characters, uh, Severum again, and, and his daughter, Ash. So Ash is a 20-year-old uh, geologist who is studying uh, terraforming, uh, which is basically shaping a planet to suit life. And Ash uh, uncovers some information that the problems on the, in the planet with global warming are, um, are, very, are basically caused by a corporation, Geostorm, and their connection to the government, and that they're all together in a scheme to profit off of environmental destruction at the people's expense. So the people are dealing with global warming and flooding, and the rich are getting richer and richer. And so Ash uncovers too much information about this, and her life is put at risk. So she has to rely on her father, Severum, for help, because he is a master terraformer and knows everything about it. Um, however, her dad doesn't know she exists. So uh, because her father doesn't know that she exists yet, um, it, there's this incredible tension between her and her father. Um, she blames her dad for not being there in, in her life, even though he um, never knew she even existed. Uh, so, you know, lots of our emotions that we feel in a situation like that are irrational. And sometimes irrational emotions are, you know, the most realistic um, in the way you portray it. So she blames her dad for not being there, but the father... Uh, didn't know that he even had a daughter. And then the father's wondering, well, what is my investment? What do I owe this daughter that I didn't know that I even had? You know, and so he's trying to figure that out. And meanwhile, reconciling things with his ex-wife. And so there's a family conflict there. Um, and it's situated within the larger conflict that as they learn more information about these conspiracies, uh, both, both their lives are put at risk and they have to rely on each other and, buy them and basically unify their family in order to resist the larger uh, forces that are against them. Wow. Incredible. Incredible. I, I think I need to grab me some copies because you touched on so many things that I question a lot about, right? Is sure. the irrational behavior mm. to the realistic behavior. 
do they have similarities or are they actually one? Mm -hmm. That's so interesting because, you know, we have seven basic emotions and each of, people would dichotomize this, Miss Liz, where, it, where you have emotion on one side and reason on the other. But every emotion actually has a function, of course, and it has its own sense of logic. Emotion, you know, anger has its own sense of logic that it runs. You know, love has its own sense of logic it runs. And it may not seem ultimately logical, but there is a certain systematic nature, um, at least neurologically, as to how these different uh, parts of the limbic system or the emotional system work. And, you know, we do separate. Um, we, we like to separate, oh, this is the anger part of the brain. This is the reptilian part of the brain. This is the you know, primitive part. This is the advanced part of the brain. Well, but we also have to remember, like you're saying, it is one system. You know, we are still one person. However, we split our mind apart. Yes, there's different parts of our mind that calculate things in different ways, but they're all necessary to create a whole unified person. Now, the problem is when, say, men are raised in society to repress their emotions, to castrate their emotions, they're not allowed, you know, they're not supposed to be emotional. And so that repression causes their own problems. Or in a relationship, when a woman, let's say, um, is not able to express her voice in a relationship and, and that and part of her is truncated or cut off, you know, mm -hmm. um, and so that's when the problem comes is when the communication stops and when we can't express ourselves. So what do you think causes the numbness of disconnecting of the, of the brain? You, you know, there is something called learned helplessness, Miss Liz. Um, so when you had, they looked at a study on monkeys that were in a laboratory being tested on. And when they, in movies, when they open the, the cages, the monkeys all run loose and wild. But in real life, if a monkey is caged their whole life being um, in a lab, that monkey, um, when the cage is open, it never runs out of the cage. The reason is it's become so used to the fact that it's trapped, that it's imprisoned, that it cannot even contemplate freedom anymore. And so I think that at some point, uh, we, we, when, when we have our needs and desires in life that go unfulfilled and that we're not able to express them and they're not listened to and heard, when that happens enough, the individual shuts down their needs and desires, they repress them, and there's an apathy that emerges from that, uh, where the person is, doesn't see the meaning in life anymore, or they, they know the meaning deep down, but it's been suppressed so much that they, you know, they don't have that meaning and purpose to drive them anymore because they find it to be pointless or futile because society isn't reflecting or their relationships aren't really bringing out the best in them. We have a question here for you, Mark. It says, are you speaking on the freezer zone? I'm not talking. I don't know what that means. What is a uh, freezer zone? I'm not sure. <laughs> That's all they wrote is... I've never heard of that expression, freezer zone. So I'm wondering if that's like the numbness of suppression. Oh, that, that would it, make it, sense. You know, it's almost like the Freon, right? It, it kind of just. Yes, that would make sense. Um, you know, yeah, there is a certain apathy that can build. And but as long as somebody has a strong value foundation, you know, this really helps to have strong values to resist a sort of nihilism. Unfortunately, when I look at the media um, and social media today, a lot of it is very nihilistic in the sense that there's no values or there doesn't seem to be many boundaries as to the um, as to the type of media that's out there. Do you feel that the media is doing good at educating us or do you feel like the, the TV, like 
the TV is kind of yeah. 5%, right? <laughs> yeah. My opinion is that uh, the media is on, I don't believe that the media is involved in government conspiracies or anything. Um, a lot of, a lot, you know, there are people that do, and I respect that belief. Um, from my perspective, the media is interested in doing one thing, and that is getting page clicks, getting page views, getting revenue, making money. You know, the media is very, you know, the corporations that own the media, we've seen this recently with Fox News. There was a lot of news about it. Um, in the states regarding um, things that they knew were not true that they put on that they um, were afraid of alienating their base and they put forth information on fox news that they knew wasn't true uh, just to make sure they kept their viewers so you know i believe the media is uh, not involved in pushing any agenda liberal or conservative that it's whatever sells but yeah. again there's there's those who who will disagree and they'll say well, Mark, do you know that 200 of the, of the newspapers out there are, are all owned by the New York Times? You know, there's really one corporation that's controlling so much um, of the media that and these corporations do have political agendas. So I understand that some people feel that way as well. To me, money is the bottom line. Um, but the media is a complicated subject for sure. And do we regulate the media? Do we try to have fair truth and make it show both sides? Um, I, I'm not sure I want the government regulating the media either. Uh, yeah. I think the, the viewers need to be informed in a way that they're able to tell a difference between, you know, when they're being politically manipulated and what the truth actually is. I wish there was less sensationalism, Miss Liz, in the media. I remember the old days when Tom Brokaw would get on TV and he would just tell you the news. And it was yeah. in a monotonic voice. Here's the facts. It was straight, direct. There was no spin on it. There was no emotions behind it. And he wasn't trying to convince you to believe anything. Right. He was, he was, just, he was saying, just giving you the news. <laughs> he just gave you the news. You know, Russia invaded this country and now it's got to be a huge blow up, you know, and the sensationalism distracts from the issues. I agree with that. There's a lot of distraction in the messages that we're giving to the communities, to our countries, to, to our individual families yes. that yes. We're, we're trying to influence people. To believe in our beliefs uh we're it's almost like a programming right like we're mm -hmm. if you don't you don't agree with us then you got to go over in that corner and if you agree well then you're in yeah. this so there's a lot of division a lot of separation in that as well right it, it almost feels like it's corporate like yes. even your yes. family is corporate now like you know if you don't bring that and bring what i want to the table you need to go that's how i that's how i feel now absolutely and the media will highlight the extremist on both sides of the political spectrum and they'll make that seem like it's the norm as well you know yeah and there's not just... there's not a lot of debate anymore right there's only no. this is how it is you're supposed to believe right. it don't you dare question it just follow the rules and go on and i right. think that's programming that's programming us you know it is it absolutely is and yeah, the, the the debate's really not there even when i watched the debate between president trump and um hillary clinton um, you know, Trump, uh, he interrupted Hillary nonstop the entire time and Hillary couldn't even speak. Um, there was no real debate between the two. It was just a series of games and interruptions. Yeah. And, and, that, and that's exactly always... what it was. A lot of games. Yeah. Games, a lot, yeah. a lot of games. So I want to get into, you, we have a couple questions that came in here um, about sociologists. Uh, what is a sociologist? So sociologists study patterns of relationships between groups of people and how those patterns of relationships um, intersect with government institutions and the institutions of society like the family, religion, um, et cetera. 
So um, groups of people, what we study the most are like, how do different races relate to one another? How do, how do men and women relate to one another? How do the poor relate to the rich? And so we study those group dynamics. Um, a psychologist is more interested in your mind and what influenced you to be the way you are. We're more interested in the structure of society and your cultural assumptions and how they influenced who you ended up becoming. We have a question here about argument, argumentations. Could you share a little bit on that? Argumentation, such as debating? Yep. How, uh, your feel on debating. So, you know, as things become increasingly polarized, like you were saying, the, the debates have been uh, sh largely shut down. And so argumentation, the issues are also becoming so complex that even if you really want to learn something to speak on it and to know what you're talking about, it's, it, it's so difficult today. Look at the economy and the rising inflation rates and the devaluing of the dollar. Uh, such, a, such a subject, I think I would need a doctorate degree in economics to really even speak on it. So what I see in argumentation is that one party will say something, the other person will make their argument, the other person will say something, the other person makes an argument, but then they run out of information that they know. And so what do they do when they run out of information or facts or stats? At that point, they rely on personal experience or their emotions to react. And those emotions often end up being simplified into an in-group dynamic and an out-group dynamic, just like you were talking about. You're in this corner and you're in this corner. And so eventually it becomes, well, you don't know what you're talking about because you support these people. Um, and so, yeah, that, com that communication, that communicative action that's so foundational to democracy is under threat just as books are being censored and other things are being censored, you know, all communications being censored. Um, democracy is only worth what the value of the education and communication of the masses. So if you have a society where the masses aren't communicating with each other openly, where they're not debating and where they're not educated, then a democracy doesn't have as much value. So, you know, in order to enforce the value of democracy, we have to, you know, take our duty as citizens to try to understand these issues but they are becoming so complex at the same time. Right. And, and it's, it's not just the U S and Canada that we, you know, yeah. this is a global, a global yeah. uh, warning for everybody to get educated, to start asking the questions, start, you know, yeah. if someone tells you something and it doesn't feel right, the intuition is telling you there's something more question it, ask questions, you know, and, and, and debate, but debate in a way that you get a solution, you get an answer to it, not an argument from it. Correct? Yes, exactly. So next, I want to get into the language of cyberpunk. So a lot mm -hmm. of people don't understand what cyberpunk is. So yeah. if you could share a little bit about cyberpunk. Sure. So mo a lot of science fiction, we think of Star Wars, Star Trek, we think of spaceships and, um, and aliens. Um, in cyberpunk, we try to look at technology and our connection to technology. Um, our anta our um, antagonists or bad guys are often like, you know, big corporations or corrupt totalitarian governments. And it generally takes place more in the near future. I set my work out farther, but lots of times it's near future rather than 30,000 years in the future. That makes the problems of cyberpunk literature that the, that the characters are exploring more relevant, more socially relevant to today's problems. And so um, it has cyberpunk literature is a postmodern genre that offers a critique of current society in a way. Oh, um, sometimes it's live. rather. Mm -hmm. oh.
Testing. Testing. Testing, testing. Testing, testing. Can you hear me, Mark? Uh, yes, can you hear me? Yes, I can. I think we got some worms that were biting or we were getting a little censored. <laughs> <laughs> I can uh, keep my webcam off to maximize the bandwidth if that makes it easier. Uh, that's totally up to you. It, it, StreamYard does that. It just bounces up and down sometimes, but it, okay. we should be okay. Yep. So and I, I, was saying, I always tell the guests yes. just to continue on. If you ever see my screen go black, just sure. keep talking and you never know what gotcha. gets out there, right? Yep. So, um, we, so, so we were talking about the cyberpunk language, if you want to continue on that, Mark. Oh, yes. Um, and so, um, yeah, so cyberpunk can offer a critique of, of the near chip to technology. And that's what makes it unique. Um, it is a genre of dystopian fiction. And uh, dystopian fiction is usually a genre of science fiction. So some of the classic of cyberpunk works um, include Neuromancer uh, by William Gibson, uh, Snow Crash by uh, Neil Stevenson, and a variety of others. Uh, the genre started in the um, early 80s, around 1980, Bruce Bethke, um, he, started talking about cyberpunk using the word cyberpunk he wrote a uh, novel about a, a novella about some teenage hackers that were uh, getting in trouble opposing different parts of the system and so but this um type of literature has its roots uh, way back before that in books such as uh, we brave new world 1984 fahrenheit and in addition to other books that influence the cyberpunk genre by people like john bruner by um, Kevin Jeter's early work, and by uh, J.G. Ballard, and by um, Burroughs, so, uh, and Thomas Pynchon. So there, this is a trajectory of uh, social uh, literature that surrounds itself around social criticism um, in order to make society better and to act as a warning against what things can become if we don't act as people. It looks like uh, Miss Liz um, is having a minor technical issue. Uh, so I'll go on uh, talking about cyberpunk for a little bit until then. So many of the classic cyberpunk um, uh, books would include say Eclipse by John Shirley. Uh, that book starts out with um, a, the government has come out with a new surveillance mechanism, which are birds 
and the birds have cameras on them and they lay eggs and the eggs listen to everything that people are hearing and report it back to the government. Um, and so that's kind of, that surveillance, uh, cyber surveillance is a uh, theme throughout the literature. And also uh, people discovering ways to hack or to protect themselves against that type of surveillance. In addition, um, books like Michael um, Swanwick's Vacuum Flowers, Dr. Thomas um, Maddox's book, Halo, and uh, books by, uh, like uh, Bruce Sterling's uh, Schism Matrix are also considered part of that literature. Well, I was just giving a rundown of some of the classic cyberpunk works from the 80s. Thank you so much. I think, I think we just got a few little worms that are glitching and biting. The myth punk. Could you share a little bit on the myth punk? You know, people have... um put this word punk on every genre and really the punk aspect is is basically resisting oppression and in, in a lot of these genres people they have somebody once said that you have to put the word punk on a genre at the end of it in order to make people think it's something new and exciting and you know basically uh, even though if it has nothing to do with punk then it has to be there regardless um, so when the when we first used the word steampunk for instance, which refers to historical literature from about 150 years ago, 100 years ago, uh, where society, where everything is like gears and whatnot, uh, clockwork stuff. Uh, steampunk was a word that um, they asked Kevin Jeter, an early cyberpunk author, uh, what he calls his um, his work, and he called it steampunk at the time as a joke. Um, to the, but the New York Times took this word and, and they made it popular. Now there's 40 genres that end in the word punk because of it. Um, but you know, punk is a is basically a stance uh, against the status quo, you know, and so it's a fluid word whose definition changes based on um, based on the type of society someone's in. Uh, but it is a resistance movement, or um, you know, a, an awakening movement to become unalienated and awakened. Uh, but with myth punk, myth punk basically takes historic fairy tales. And it reimagines those fantastical fairy tales in ways to make them modern and relevant to modern social pro, uh, problems. So Catherine Valenti's work is one example of this. And um, there was there's some other works in the MythPunk section on my website, um, such as Bone Dance. I forget the author right now. Um, that tr that attempt to do this. Emma Bull, that was her name, who wrote Bone Dance. I do, I do believe that the worms are biting. I'm not sure if they're biting because StreamYard is having issues. But I do believe that Mark is still here. So, Mark, if you hear me? Yes. Yes, I can. Okay. Yeah, I think we're just having some glitches. I think StreamYard is just sacking up. I think it's just the program. I don't think it's either one of us. Sure. So. I agree. So if you'd like to share a little bit about the new world and how you feel about it. I'm sorry, to share a little bit about uh, what was that? The, the, your feeling on the new world. 
Oh, the new world, the new actual world that we're living in. So, yes. I, I, yeah, it, it is complicated. Um, so right now we say we're on the mer, er, we're on the edge of World War III, possibly. Uh, but with that being said, there have been 250 different uh, wars that have been fought. There have been uh, over 250 wars that have been fought in the past, you know, uh, 50 years. And so the world has always been at war. Um, I've, it's, it's always been, you know, a World War III, you know, constant non-ending conflict uh, ever since the 50s, um, at, at least, or ever since the end of World War II in the 40s. And so uh, we have a privileged stance in North America where we can talk about World War III as if it hasn't happened yet. But if you were to live in, say, um, in um, Ghana around the Ivory Coast or Rwanda, for instance, uh, where they had the, um, the, the 600,000 deaths during the, the uh, 1996, during the Huchi and Tutu incident, uh, then, you know, the, the idea of World War is something that's very apparent to you. If you're a Palestinian who who is involved in fighting the Israelis every single day of your life, you know, and I've been doing so for many, many decades, then the world, you know, we can look at the engagements across the world and we, the world's always been at war. Um, even the, in the Christian Bible says there will always be war and rumors of war. Um, with that being said, that we take some hope in the new world, Miss Liz, because the 20th century was the least violent century in history. Um, now, more lives were lost in the 20th century than other centuries, but as a percentage of overall population, uh, it was um, less violent as far as the, as the percent of the global population that was lost to war. So violence does tend to be going down. You know, there, um, starvation is going down uh, significantly. Um, but then we, but then there are times when you see like nationalism pop up across Europe and Britain and the U.S. and in um, and and in Russia and whatnot, and that nationalism is really pushing society backwards. It's pushing us back into the into a very old power dynamic where we venerate tyrants and monarchs, and um, we allow ourselves to be uh, suppressed in that way. And that's a scary thing to take a step backwards. We would like every society to take a step forward to freedom and democracy. But when we find that these things are being you know, under fire, I live in a state where there's been tremendous censorship of books recently. In some schools, they lost 90% of their books to censorship. Even Judy Bloom is, no, is now censored. And so what can I do with a world where people can't read Judy Bloom as a child? Judy Bloom is one of my favorite. Uh, <laughs> so really, we're doing a lot of other things, but we're focusing on censoring the wrong things. That's how I feel. Exactly, exactly. So there are, when I look at the things, even on YouTube, you know, there's so much of what I would consider pornography on YouTube. Um, and, you know, that's not censored in any way, um, even though children can access the site easily. On the other hand, um, again, we censor Judy Bloom super fudge because it has a couple pages about somebody um, about somebody coming to age and understanding that they may be sexually exploited. You know, those lessons that we you know have to teach the hard lessons. You know, one person gets offended and we have to take the book out of all schools and bookstores. It's, it's funny that you mentioned that bookmark because that was the very first book that I read more than once. Oh, that yeah. That was like one of my favorite yes. books as a teenager. 
Oh yeah, I can't remember which one I'm referencing. Uh, there was Fudge and then Super Fudge, and then there was um, there was at least two or three others I read at the time. Um, yeah, she has she had some really incredible books. Yeah, it was a long time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Mark, I want to get into your tea. So, if I ask you what your tea is today, what tea are you serving to the audience today? I would say teaching, activism, and exploration. You know, teaching by promoting education and, you know, podcasts like this where important issues are discussed. Activ um, activism in the sense of we know things, and so let's act on it as a population, maybe through boycotts, for instance, consumer boycotting, um, or simply not using certain social media sites. And then exploration, both of the world around us, getting out from our four walls, Miss Liz, to, to explore the world, but also exploring our inner world through meditation and reflection. I, I, I really like that word, explore, exploitation, uh, exploration. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Two different words, two different meanings. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, like when, I like when my guests dig, dig deep and serve their teeth because this is truly who you are. You, you, during the mm. whole show, you've been sharing a lot of knowledge, a lot of education, a lot of teaching. So where did it all come from, Mark, for you? Um, you know, reading so many uh, books all, over my life, um, it, you know, especially the 19th century literature, Walden and um, books, you know, by Thoreau, Emerson's books, um, and, you know, Walt Whitman, Song of Myself. You know, in these books, there's so much individualism. There's so much, you know, push for rights and freedoms. And there's so much resistance and um and basically, you know, in the transcendentalist literature that I studied growing up, you know, ever since I was a teen, what I really gathered from that is that there are different sources of authority that people have that they can subscribe to. There is a government authority, but there is a separate authority which is inbuilt or ingrained into people, um, you know, ingrained values. Some people would say those values come from evolution. Some people would say they come from God. Uh, but wherever they come from, uh, there is a certain you know inner humanity that we can bring out which is ultimately good and cooperative i believe that that humanity can become corrupted by too much competition uh he is his website is up there on the screen if you want to know more more about mark check out the description uh in the audio podcasts uh once we're uploaded uh, Mark, I really want to thank you for joining me today <laughs> with all the glitches and that. Uh, I want to get into a little bit more of the personal questions that I ask. Sure. Favorite color is in one word to yourself. So the color that you gave me for yourself, your favorite color is blue. And the one word you gave me was seeker. So could you share a little bit on those two things? Oh, yes, you know, blue is a calming color. It's, you know, it's associated with tranquility and the ocean. You know, I've always had, you know, I always feel a stronger connection with uh, water. Uh, you know, I've met people that have a connection to the forest or they feel more connection with fire. To me, you know, water has always been my draw. And so blue as a color. Um, and then as a seeker, you know, again, seeking, um, you know, not only in external ways, but inside. Um, as a Buddhist, I like to, you know, explore Eastern texts. Um, I've read most of the world's religious texts of most of the world's religions. And, you know, it, I'm not say, saying that any one is right or more right than another. 
at the end of the day, for me, it was, being a seeker was just finding what resonated with my heart and with my inner spirit. You know, everybody has to find that for themselves. Nobody can really tell you what your path is, you know, but I believe that all those paths lead to the same ocean, as we say. Okay, let me see what else I have here. What defines humanity for you, Mark? What defines it is how we treat each other in a given instant. Uh, society can never be more than the sum of interactions between people at any given moment. And so what defines it is the way we treat each other. When we do so with compassion and kindness, then we often get kindness and compassion in return. When we are honest, we also we often uh, get you know people who are trustworthy to interact with us in return. That's not to say that sometimes there's not there's not bad people who are trying to take advantage of you and exploit you. You know there is there's suffering and there is a lot of negativity. But we have to even if it does not make sense, we still have to approach the world with optimism, no matter how jaded we've become. Um, you know because again society is a sum of all of our interactions, and in the end not being optimistic hurts us more than it does, you know, anyone. Um, so it, it's hard. The older you get, I think the, whole, the harder it is because as you grow, your, your suffering in life accumulates. But hopefully you know why you suffered. You know, hopefully you understand what your purpose was. And I want I want into the music with you, uh, Mark. You 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 a writer of jazz, or do you just listen to the jazz and the metal and all of that to help you understand the world? Oh, uh, you know, I've been writing music and uh, playing it for twenty five years. But yeah, I love every genre of music. Um, you know, every genre has a certain emotion attached to it. Uh, when I go to the beach next week, I'll be listening to bossa nova, Brazilian jazz, for instance. Uh, when I write a certain action scene, I need to listen to metal music, you know, to go along with it. Um, but, you know, writing music is, it's, it's first, I understand it's not necessary. There are millions of albums out there. Most songs have already been written that can be written. And there's more than enough to listen to by Justin Simon and Garfunkel and Crosby, Stills and Nash and Rush's catalogs that I really don't need. You know, the world doesn't necessarily need more music. But what each individual needs is to be able to express their own song regardless. You know, it doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be the best song in the world. It just has to be the song that came from your heart. And so music's very meaningful to me. So the expression of music. I'm sorry, what, uh, what was that regarding the expression? So the expression of music also helps with writing and creating and understanding life as well, too, because we use music when we're hurting, right? When we're having these emotions, we listen to sad oh. songs, we listen to love songs, we, you know? So we use the music as well to get through life. So could you give me two songs that have made a difference in your life? Oh, sure. Um, you know, one is Hemispheres by Rush. And so it's a 20-minute track. And Hemispheres by Rush, that's where I named my uh, book from. Um, and, and basically, the song uh, goes through a conflict between Apollo and Dionysus, uh, which was the ancient Greek uh, gods of reason and emotion, um, in a way, uh, or hedonism and, res and restriction. And so, you know, that dialectic was really interesting to me lyrically and influenced me. Um, as far as another song, I, I, you know, this... 
it's hard not to name something like the sounds of silence, you know, by, you know, Paul Simon, you know, the sound of silence is just so powerful. Not only is it emotionally more moving than almost any song, but you know, the message there uh, is just unfathomable. And he's the main, he was the that song. I'm sorry, you uh, broke, you broke up after you said he was a big name. So was he, he was the writer of Sound of Silence, correct? Paul Simon? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Paul Simon and, and I guess Art Garfunkel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It took him uh, four months to write it, he said. So, where we can find you, all that good stuff, Mark, before we wrap up your tea time, because we're sure. almost so at you the can hour, find me. And I want people to know where they can find you. Absolutely. Stuff. You can, you can uh, find myself at markeverglade.com. Um, if you, um, it's Mark Everglade, G-L-A-D-E. And if you sign up for the mailing list, I only mail once or twice a year and you get a, a free um, ebook of short stories that I've published. And uh, basically that's probably the best way to link to my other um, novels. I'll put that in the chat. If anybody um, wanted to have you as a guest for a podcast, how could they reach out to you? Okay, um, you perfect. Use, and uh, I will share that. Yep. And then I'll, I'll put my email address. Did you did you get what I asked you, Mark? Sorry, it uh, cut out. I'm sorry, I did not. <laughs> no, no, don't be sorry. It's not any of your fault. It's uh, technology, right? Technology will always right, catch right. us when we're not looking. Yes. So, any any way of finding resources on cyberpunk? What, what would you recommend people check out to know more about the cyberpunk? Stuff? One on my uh, website, I have a review section um, that basically uh, goes through 100 different cyberpunk books and provides a review of, of the literature. Um, and so they're pretty deep reviews. There's also interviews with the classic authors from the 80s on there and um, a review of, of new media and books in, on the subject as well. Uh, there's also another site called Neon Dystopia. And Neon Dystopia is a wonderful site uh, to keep up with the genre. Well, thank you so much, Mark, for sharing that. And thank you so much for joining me today on Tea Time. And thank you to the audience and all that who came in and brought some questions. And we've got some really good education out there for everyone that's tuning in. If you're watching the replay, please let Miss Liz know where you're tuning in from. I always like to know where you're tuning in from. If you have any questions and you'd like to reach out to Mark and you can't find Mark or, or you 
feel that you want to come through Miss Liz, you can do that as well. And I will direct everything directly to Mark as Mark and I do have connections. Uh, I do have his email and all that. So Mark, I want to, before we wrap up, I do know that you have a blog on your website. Is that, is that open for other people to blog on your page or is that blogs that you create? Uh, no, I created and um, I, I used to have comments, but I restricted it. Um, the comments usually came in through kind of like an external site. Uh, okay. But yeah, just for the sake of control. Okay. And one last question before we wrap up and, and we're going to close up. How do you feel about the gaming world of cyberpunk? About the indie world of cyberpunk? The, the gaming world. Of uh, the gaming world. You know, the games are, they again, they get the cyber right, but they're, these huge corporations that are putting out the games don't always, um, you know, get the messages as to poverty, right? Or the messages as to, you know, preventing racism and other things. Um, and Cyberpunk 2077 is a, is a big game in the genre. And really, even William Gibson, one of the most famous cyberpunk authors, has criticized the game as just basically being Grand Theft Auto with a retro-futuristic styling. And so I don't really think that uh, many of the games are really upholding the true values of the genre. I think everything gets watered down for mass consumption. Well, you, that, that's a good point. Uh, before we wrap up, I do want to talk about that is uh, the gaming world. Do you feel that it's become more violent for the children? Yes. I mean, games have become more violent over, over a long course of time, but they did a study on the brain when playing video games. And they found that whether you are shooting someone realistically in a game or whether Mario, a cartoon, is jumping on a Goomba, you're still killing something and the brain registers the same way for violence. So even if the violence is cartoon or realistic, the brain still treats it the same way on some level. You know, violence is simply violence to the brain. Um, and so that that's very interesting. In that sense, they've always been violent. Wow. Well, thanks for sharing that because I think that that's information that we really need to get out there. And as a parent and as a grandmother, I, I really watch the gaming world because I find that there is a lot of violence in the games. And even on, on TV, there's a lot, like you said, 5% of on TV is educational now. Um, right. You know, we NPR. really need to start changing things and bringing education back to the table. So again, Mark, I want to thank you for bringing a really strong educational tea to this morning, uh, this afternoon to the tea time. Um, and if anybody would like to know more about Tea Time, you can check out Miss Liz on my website at www.misslizesteaparties and teatimes.com. There are two different websites, but they do link to the same website. So please check that out. Um, if you would like to know more about any of my guests, you can check out and see and watch their Tea Times at any time at your own pace on my YouTube channel. So give that a quick subscribe and you can be notified when there's a new live coming. Um, again, Mark, thank you so much for bringing so much education to the table. I really enjoyed this conversation and you opened a lot of doors and a lot of avenues for people to really just look into, you know, and find out, do the research in that. Um, again, if you'd like to find out more about Mark, check him out on his website at www.markeverglaze.com. He has it in the comments section as well. Uh, for all the questions and viewers that were tuning in today, I want to thank you again. And I will see everybody on Thursday where I will be bringing three shows. So we will do 10 a.m., 3 p.m., and 7 p.m. because that's what Miss Liz does is I do three shows in one day. Again, this is a rescheduled tea time. So if you do see it on a different date, don't, don't uh, get alarmed. This is a rescheduled tea time. So again, Mark, thank you so much. And I want to give a big shout out to 
Creative Edge, Mickey Mickelson, for giving me mm. such an incredible guest today. So thank you, Mickey, for that. Thank you. And thank and, you. I really appreciate it. So any final words before we wrap up? Uh, if I were, um, just challenge yourself every day to, to just do one good thing, you know, one good thing that's out of your ordinary, you know, for someone, no matter how small it is. Awesome. Thank you. So I will see everybody Thursday, 10 a.m. for a new tea time. Mark, Thank you. Don't, don't leave. I'm going to talk to you in a bit. Take care.